Uh, and James asked me, um, he said, hey, you are, uh, you know, I, I said, well, I'm preaching Psalm 23. And he said, are you nervous at all, like that you're preaching, you know, one of the most well-known texts in the Bible? Um, everybody knows it. Everybody's got an opinion on it. Everybody's got a perspective. That was James, right? Oh, was it John? Um, and I, it, it didn't bother me until then. Um, and and now uh, now it's there. So uh, I'm going to do my best with this. Um, here's the deal. I Psalms Psalms on its own is difficult. Uh, preaching on its own is a whole funny tight walk. I I approach the scriptures from a particular perspective. I I do my best to teach you what's in the text. I teach you what the history is. I do my best to explain to you the context uh, in terms of like the cultural stuff and then the larger biblical context. And then I try to find the truths that are contained therein. I, there are folks who will use a text and preach a sermon and use the text as a proof. I, I don't do that. I, and I'm going to do my best here, okay? And so if I step on somebody else's Psalm 23 sermon, I apologize. I, uh, I don't care, um, but I am sorry. <laughs> um, I'm going to do my best to do what's in the text. And, and real quick, before we get to sort of the meat of the issue, um, the Psalms are a funny text to preach anyway. Because the Psalms are this weird combination of, like, the Word of God and inspired by the Holy Spirit and, and all of that. But it's also the human heart poured out, right? Like, so you get this human perspective where they're writing about their agony and their despair and their fear and their, you know, the, the stuff they're experiencing. Um, but at the same time, it's spirit-filled. And so it's a place where we can kind of meet God very intimately, right? Like, we can encounter God very personally. And, and I think in particular, um, and I've talked about this a bit over the last few weeks, t- Psalm 20, 21, 22, and 23 run the gambit. And, and they tell the story of the scriptures in a very unique way, um, where Psalm 20 and 21 are prayers, or Psalm 20 is a, pr- is a prayer for the king. You know, hey, pr- preserve our king as he faces danger. You know, save our king. And then Psalm 21 is from the king's perspective where he's saying, God, save me and rescue me from my enemies. Save me and, um, you know, and then he rejoices in the salvation God provides. And then you get to Psalm 22 and it's hopeless. It is the psalm of, where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? And, and that one in particular, Psalm 21, is huge because we all, I, I think the majority of people, maybe not everybody, but the majority of us at some point in time or another, experience something so broken and messed up where we back up and say, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, why aren't you rescuing me? God, why don't you save me? And it's also pointing forward to when Jesus would die on the cross for us and where where Christ would experience ultimate despair, where God would pour his wrath out on on him to save you and me from our sins. Like, that is amazing. And so when I experience hopelessness, I can read and, like, pray through this text, Psalm 21, from, which we did last week, and I can say, God, I feel so hopeless, but I, I know you know it. I know you've been through it. I, it was one of the things that surprised me most when I, when I went through AA. It was like, you'd hear these people talk about their problems, and you would say, hey, that's me. Like, I did that, or I feel that way, and all of a sudden you weren't alone. And I think there's truth in it, too. As we read, like, Psalm 21, if we're hopeless, we can experience this element of God knows what it's like. 
God knows what it feels like. Um, or Psalm 22, sorry, not Psalm 21. Um, and so we're going to dive into Psalm 23, which everybody knows. Before I do that, i got an illustration. I want to share, share, share a, an idea here. Um, most of us, is anybody here like a sheep herder? Goats are not sheep. <laughs> but I will give you that that's close. And there are a couple of goat herders here, which is why they don't count. <laughs> um, regardless, we are culturally and geographically and historically removed from this text, right? This is pretty foreign to us. Most of us don't raise sheep. Some of you all raise cows, and I think they're different, right? They, cows taste better, if nothing else. Um, <laughs> And, no, you're wrong. <laughs> That's enough out of you, troublemaker. Um, but, and so I was trying to think about, like, like, sheep and the experience that people had with sheep. In the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon for people to take a sheep, like one of their sheep, as a pet, right? And, in fact, actually it was so common that there were Jewish laws pertaining to sheep as pets and how they were to be handled and, like, the legal ramifications of it, like, that was different, which is weird, isn't it? Um, especially since sheep are gross. Like, I don't know why you would want a sheep as a pet. Um, and so as I was looking at this and trying to figure out the best way to talk about it, I thought about talking about my kids, and I thought about talking about um, a bunch of different stuff. But I, I figured, um, I, I have a dog. And just about everybody has a dog, right? Except for you cat people. But I'm sure Jesus will fix you eventually. My... My dog, Abby and I went and picked him out from the pound, and I, I got him to be a hunting dog, and I was going to teach him to, to hunt birds. And I, so I looked, and I found a, a, a boxer Labrador, which boxers apparently are a hunting breed as well. And so, like, this crossbreed, I researched it, and, like, apparently it's a fantastic breed for bird hunting, and I was all excited until he started to grow up, and he was definitely a pit bull. Like, I mean, he's got boxer, but he's a pit bull. And, and he is my dog. Have you ever experienced that, where a dog is yours? Now, my favorite thing about this dog, he'll go out in the yard and he'll bark at the neighbors. I hate that. Bark at the neighbor's dog. He'll bark at anything because dogs are dumb. Um, and I'll say, Titus, go get the dog in here. And Titus will go and he'll open the back door and he'll stand there and he will scream at the top of his lungs over and over, Jai, get in here! Jedi! And you know what the dog does? Ignores him completely. And then he'll say, all right, Dad, come get him. And I'll get up and I'll call him once and he'll sit down again and he'll come tearing in because he does what I tell him. He knows my voice, right? I come upstairs at night and my wife will be in bed and he'll jump on the bed and cuddle up with her and I'll walk up the stairs. When he hears me coming up the stairs, he gets up, jumps off the bed and lays in the corner, because he knows I'm in charge. I lay down, and sometime around 2 in the morning, he gets up and he curls up with me. Right? Because he knows that I'm not going to kick him off the bed at that point. Cause I'm... But he is, he is my dog. He knows my voice. He waits for me to come home. He, he was sick the other day, and he curled up with me. I was sick a few months ago, and he came and laid with me. Um, he is my dog um now we get into psalm 23 
And, and it's not a perfect analogy because dogs, we, we kind of have a low opinion of them in a lot of ways. Um, but this is a psalm of David, meaning David wrote this, which makes it extra powerful because David was, David was a shepherd, right? Like David kept sheep. And he was king. And in the ancient world, it was a really common thing amongst the Jews and the pagans as well, like where they would talk about the king as though he was a shepherd over his nation, right? Like as though it was his job to like sort of lead the nation and keep them safe and take care of their needs and everything else. And so it was really common for a king to say, well, I am the shepherd of my people or, or hey, he is our shepherd and he leads us. In this case, David starts out, the Lord is my shepherd, Now watch this. He is saying, God is my king. Right? God is my king. God is the one whose voice I listen to. God is the one I obey. God is the one who makes sure I get fed. God is the one who I want to be close to because I feel best when I'm close to that. Like to to God. He is my king. And I shall not want. And, like, if you think about this, this is the ancient world, okay? We live in a very nice time. It is incredibly unusual for people in our country to starve to death, right? Like, it does happen, and you know how it happens? Like, it happens when people develop a mental illness that makes them not eat or eat and intentionally vomit or what have you. And then people actually starve to death. That is a thing that happens, Um, Or they have a medical issue that prevents them from, like, absorbing food properly. But otherwise, I mean, we throw away food like it's nothing, right? I mean, like, it is amazing how much food is just tossed in this country. It is amazing. Like, this is one of the only places and times in history where if you are hungry, in every city in the country, there's somebody who will feed you. It's the truth, right? Right. the government hands out food and, and vouchers to buy food. I mean, like, it is difficult to starve. Um, in this day and age, people starve to death. Like, and I, Israel, like, if you really start thinking about it, I, I think John and I have been there, maybe like two or three others here, right? Israel is, it's amazing people fight over it. Like, it is a lot of rocks and dirt and hot, right? It doesn't rain. And when it does rain... There's nothing on the ground to hold it, and so you could pretty easily drown. <laughs> and so you're like, oh, it's raining great, you know, and then all of a sudden you're in a flash flood, and like, oh, my gosh. It is, it is not a very nice place. Um, and so the idea of not wanting there in a place where you scrape out survival, I mean, Wow. One of our, uh, one of our dogs... Uh, we have a little one. He was abandoned by his owner, um, like locked in the garage, and they moved away. And he was in the garage, locked in, and he nearly starved to death. He was there for several weeks, locked in the garage. And, and he was at the vet for like six months after that, and then we got him from a rescue. And every day when we would come home from work, I have a film of it, he would meet us at the door crying and jumping up and down because he was so happy that we came back. I shall not want, because my king comes for me every time. This is a huge contrast now, because these psalms are put together on purpose, right? Psalm 22, like, is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This one is, 
I'm never going to want a thing because God will take care of me. I will never be alone. I will never be hungry. I will never be abandoned because God is with me, because God is my king. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. Now watch this. Um, Green pastures and still waters. Again, we're talking about Israel here. These don't happen. (laughs) Or they do happen, but they're not that common. And so this is an assurance that God will take his people to to where they'll be taken care of, to where they will be provided for. Um, This is an assurance that God is on my team and that God will watch over me. Um, still waters, by the way, green, green pastures, obviously for, for sheep, that's food, right? Like God provides me food in a place where I could easily starve. Um, now there's a contrast between the real world and this. There are times, there are times God's people end up in, in ugly places, right? We're going to get to that. But in this setting, he's talking about, like, listen, God meets my needs. God takes care of me. He leads me beside still waters. It's hard to think about still waters. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time reflecting on this. Like in an area where flash floods happen or there is no water um, or water runs very swiftly from one place to another because of the rain. Um, I, I um, Claire Alderdice, who I... I think is one of the awesomest people I know, told me a story about the cattle going out on the ice one day at the river down there where, when she was growing up because they were looking for water because the water had frozen over and the cattle went out on the ice and the ice broke and they just one after another followed each other into the water and just got drawn down river and that was it, right? Like still water is a big deal to a small animal. Like sheep, I don't like sheep. They, maybe they swim, but they probably don't swim well enough for swift water to save them, you know, to be safe in swift, swift water. Like, like the idea here is I can drink and I'm not in danger. I'm fed and comforted and taken care of, and it is awesome. Um, my pets look at me and think this way of me, right? I look at God and say, not that I'm God's pet. Um, if I am, I'm not a very good pet. Um, but I look to God and I say, God feeds me. God takes care of me. God has brought me to places where I'm safe. God has brought me into, into his family in Big Sandy, and I'm blessed by that. God has provided for my family in ways I could never, ever, ever deserve or pay back. I'm blessed. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now watch this. So, like, all of this stuff is physical, and then we get into this. He restores my soul. I, I deleted Facebook and, and Twitter this week. Anybody else done that recently? Anybody else stop reading the news this week? Last week? Anybody? <laughs> months ago. Is anybody about sick of everybody being angry? Anybody sick of the bitterness and the hate and... The, 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 the misery that seems to, like, soak our world right now? Anybody exhausted deep inside? He restores my soul. He makes me whole again when I'm exhausted. He takes my brokenness and makes it right. Probably the best example I remember of this, 
I had a, when I was, when I was drinking heavily, when I was kind of hiding stuff and my life was so broken and I was angry all the time, I remember there was a day, like, I, I started getting my life right with Jesus again, and there was a day I was walking, I was at work and I was walking between buildings, and I thought, what's that feeling I'm feeling? What is that? And, like, I couldn't identify it. You ever get that where you, like, have a feeling? You're like, what is that? And I sat down, like, on a rock, and I thought about it, and I'm like, what am I feeling? And I was like, oh, I'm not worried about anything. I feel pretty good right now. Like, I just don't feel rotten. And, like, it was so weird because I hadn't experienced that in ages, and that was a gift from God, right? Like, he restores my soul. He makes me whole. He gives me peace. takes care of me. He leads me in paths of righteousness, meaning God doesn't just send me down paths of righteousness. He doesn't just take me where I'm going. He doesn't just command me, do this or else. He leads me. Points me in the direction of how to act and how to handle myself in difficult situations. But he does it for his namesake. Now watch this. In the ancient world, your name said a great deal about you, right? There was a man named Jacob. Jacob was a bit of a dishonest individual. He, he ripped off his brother and his father and then his stepfather who also ripped him off. And Jacob means deceiver it actually means bent but like it's generally understood to mean deceiver or liar um the abram a-b-r-a-m um the the synopsis of what it meant was guy who doesn't have any kids and his name was changed to abraham which means father of great nations right um hosea had several children he named one of them this is not my child and another son of another man (laughs) <laughs> Peter's name was changed to, well, from Simon to Peter, which means the rock. Um, and actually, there's some argument that he was named Peter many rocks. And then Jesus' Peter the rock was a solid, individual, foundational rock. Like, names meant something. So if God leaves me in paths of righteousness, if God takes care of me for his name's sake, he does it because God's name means something. And he has to live up to that name, right, for his namesake. So, like, um, Jehovah Jireh means my provider, right? Uh, God has to provide for his people because he is Jehovah Jireh, right? Um, Like, God takes care of his people because it is who he is. For him to cease doing it would would be to undo himself. Oh, here's where it gets fun. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, there's this, like, part of the city that's on the side by um, the valley. There's a valley right here, and the, the Kidron Valley. And then, like, the Mount of Olives is right there. I talk about this every Easter because it's, like, the coolest thing I learned about Easter in Israel. But this Kidron Valley... At night, it gets dark. Actually, there's a highway there, so now it never gets dark. Lash back 100 years, <laughs> and the sun would go down, and the Kidron Valley was dark. And on the side of the hill, there's a city, like are the remnants of the city, Old Jerusalem. And David's palace is right, actually, over on the other side, not right there, because the temple's right there. Um, so it'd be right next to the temple, um, looking down into the Kidron Valley, which is the Valley of Death. 
in the ancient world, they would call it that. It was like the euphemism, it was the valley of death. And so from David's palace, he could look out over the valley of death and say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The literal translation, valley of the shadow of death, is the valley of the shadowiest shadows. This might be literal, but I think it's also figurative. Anybody ever find themselves in that place? The shadowiest shadows? Where nothing could possibly get any better like or any worse, like where it's as bad as it's going to get? Where you wake up in the morning and you feel ashamed or you feel hopeless or you feel violated or you feel broken or you feel worthless or you feel whatever. You're in this place where everything is as, everything is as broken as it's going to get. Where the world around us is on fire and it seems like it'll never stop. Um, to give you a little bit of historical context or uh, geographical context, there are these things called um, wadis. That's the word. A wadi is a valley between two hills. And the thing with wadis in that part of the world is heat has a tendency of collecting down in the bottom. And so you would pass through these things. You'd go up, down, or down, up. And in the bottom, it would be like 140 degrees, hot, still, miserable, because the ground absorbs the heat, and it all hangs out down there in this little hole. And so you get down in these holes, and it's dark, and it's hot, and it's miserable, and it feels like death. How's that for an illustration, right? Anybody ever been in that place? Is it that... Um, Rich Mullins says, uh, it's so hot inside my soul, there must be blisters on my heart. Anybody ever been there? And so what the psalmist is saying, listen, even when I find myself in the wadi, even when I find myself boiling in the, in the hole, even when I find myself in the shadowiest of shadows, I will fear no evil. Now, mind you, My microphone came off. Mind you, this is like two verses after he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leaves me beside still waters, which sort of implies that sometimes the world's going to be green pastures and still waters, and sometimes it's going to be the valley of the shadow of death. I may pass through one and into the other, but all the while I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And the assurances that God does not abandon us. He doesn't leave us behind. He does not forsake us. We may feel that way, but in reality is with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I love this passage. Your rod and your staff. The staff would be a walking stick. The rod would be a short stick with a ball on the end. You know what they use that for? <laughs> Hitting stuff. Um, and generally the idea would be, the, the staff you would use to sort of like steer the sheep around, right? And then the rod you would use to defend the sheep or, and I had never seen anything like it. I remember the week that we interviewed here, which would have been a couple of months ago, eight years ago, I went with uh, Larry and Daniel to see a, a calf pulled because this calf was in a, it was a, ba a young cow, right? That's how it works. And the, the feet, it was a first time, it was a heifer, right? And so then the feet were stuck out and the cow was not being born, and they needed to get the cow into the chute, or the cow was going to probably die, right? Like, you can't just have a baby get stuck and not get pulled out. And so 
they bring the cow into the barn, and the cow is in labor, so she's noticeably unhappy. Um, and they're trying to get the cow to go into the chute so that they could pull the calf out. They are literally saving the cow's life. And what's the cow doing? It's trying to kill them. And I watch Daniel pick up a stick. <laughs> it seems like it was a designated stick for this purpose. I've seen them with golf handles on them. <laughs> and Daniel whacked that cow and chased her around the barn whacking that cow. And the cow went up on a pile of boards and nearly fell over. And Daniel chased her and whacked the cow. And I remember uh, Larry saying, don't let the cow take you. You know, and the cow turned on him and he swung around. It was amazing. And eventually he pushed that cow into the chute and they tied a chain around the calf's legs and they yanked that cow out of there. By the way, this is a, less than a year after, or a little over a year after I watched Jess in labor for 52 hours, and I thought, man, what were they thinking? We could have just done that. Um, <laughs> not hit her with a stick. <laughs> if that was going to work. <laughs> um, that was the worst thing I've said all morning. Um, <laughs> your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now watch this fact of the matter is the rod and the staff, it steers you, it protects you, but sometimes, sometimes it hurts. And sometimes when God hurts us, he does it to comfort us. How can that possibly be? What is it that C.S. Lewis, I got to paraphrase him, I'm sorry, because I, I don't remember the quote exactly. Um, you know, he, he talks about a statue inside of marble. And, and using a hammer and chisel to break away the marble and, and show out the statue, right? It doesn't hurt to be broke. It hurts to be broken. It hurts to be chipped away. It hurts to be refined. But in the end, what we are on the other side is better. And there are times that God must use his rod and his staff to comfort us by driving us. Is that fun? No. Is it easy? No. Is it good? Yeah. I suspect as the psalmist is writing this, he's coming back and he's saying, listen, even though it's bad, even though it's dark, even though it's hot, even though I think I'm dying, I'm not afraid of anything. Because God is with me and his rod and his staff, even when he corrects me, he comforts me and he protects me. Everything that it seems like might destroy my world, everything that it seems like might like defile me forever or, or keep me in chains of bondage or whatever, like whatever that garbage is, I know God can break through it. I know God can step over it. I know that God is more powerful. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So not only, by the way, this is cool, because not only does God take care of him, but he does it in the presence of his enemies, meaning even when life is dangerous, God is taking care of me, right? How do you do that in the presence of your enemies? Well, um, there's some argument that this is a reference to the temple because in the ancient world, there were cities and the temple where you could, if you were in trouble, go and get sanctuary, right? And so you would run into the temple and you would receive sanctuary. And like, so nobody could kill you. They would just wait outside. <laughs> and you could hang out there forever until, you know, the priest kicked you out or, which happened uh, 
sometimes, or like the, you know, the city of refuge kick you out or whatever when it was time to go. Um, but the idea being like, even though I'm in danger, even though my enemies are surrounding me, God is preparing a table before me. Now, in the ancient world, to have a guest, to offer hospitality was the most important thing like you could do. In fact, actually, one of the sins that Sodom and Gomorrah were like renounced for was failing to show hospitality. Like, if you did not welcome somebody, they could die. Because Israel is an awful place. Like, it is hot and it's desert. And, like, if somebody came to you and said, I need some water, and you said, no, get out of here, you could be condemning them to death. Like, like it's an actual thing. And so once somebody was in your home, once somebody was at your table, you protected them and you kept them safe. Um, there are modern examples of this. If you watch the film um, Soul Survivor, right? Uh, it's the story of Marcus Luttrell. He was a, a Navy SEAL. And he goes charging or, like, fleeing down a mountain. And he's got you know, Taliban soldiers chasing him. And he goes into a village and a man takes him into his home and he becomes his guest. And basically from that point forward, the village was going to keep him alive. If they, if they all died in the process, they would never hand him over because he was their guest. And, and the idea is, well, we don't have anything for this guy, but like this is our rule and we'll, we'll die protecting it. Like it is still a thing today in that part of the, in different parts of the world. Um, in oriental cultures, I think is the proper term. Um, but the idea that God prepares a table before me means that when my enemies approach, God will protect me. You anoint my head with oil, which means that he heals me and he gives me honor. And my cup overflows, meaning my blessing is constant and forever and more than I could possibly expect. Which is a far cry from the valley of the shadow of death, isn't it? The shadowiest of shadows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, the house of the Lord would be uh, probably in this context the temple, um, though there's a strong argument that this is an early version of heaven, right? Like, surely goodness and mercy, meaning that God is going to follow me for the rest of my life, and when my life ends, he will continue to take care of me. Even when I'm in the darkness, God will take care of me. Even when... I fail, he'll show me mercy. Even when the whole world is out to kill me, even when my enemies stab me in the back or trick me, even when I deserve it, goodness and mercy will, even when I don't deserve it, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what do we do with that as modern believers? First off, this psalm next to Psalm 22, O God, O God, why have you forsaken me? This is powerful. But this is what we have because he had that, right? As a follower of Jesus, I know I'm safe in all circumstances. As a follower of Christ, I know that the past is, is gone. That as far as the east is from the west, so far has my sin been removed from me. As a follower of Jesus, I know that God will avenge my blood. That God will heal me of brokenness, that God will touch my heart and my soul when things are as screwed up as they could possibly get. Like, as a follower of Christ, as his sheep, since he is my king, I'm safe. Because he did Psalm 22. I got Psalm 23. And Christ promises us that, right? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock is scattered. 
the man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I bring them also. Oh, hold on. I lay down my life for the sheep. I, I have other sheep that are not of this pen, which is a reference to the Gentiles, no matter what anybody says. Uh, I must bring them also. I, I too will listen, they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Now we're going to put this in context of Psalm 23 and 22, right? Psalm 22 is about the good shepherd laying down his life. It's about why he is the good shepherd. Because his hands and his feet were pierced on our behalf. And because of that, we know we're forgiven. Because of that, we know we have received grace. Because of that, we know we have comfort. Because of that, when I turn the TV on and the world is on fire and everybody, everybody in authority and everybody on the TV seems wicked and broken, and I can look in that and say, God is in control. The good shepherd has not abandoned me. I can look and say, this part of my life is broken. This happened to me. I did this. This is where my family is, and that's not okay. This is where my heart is, and that's okay. This is what I'm chained with, and that's not okay. But I can back up and say, even though my enemies surround me, God is preparing a place, like a table for me. Even though I'm in the shadowiest of shadows, Christ died for me. And I know that goodness will follow me all the day. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because Christ is the good shepherd. Because God forsake him, I am forgiven. I'm adopted into his family. I am one of his sheep. I know his voice. My question for you today is do you know his voice? Do you listen for it when? When everything is dark? Do you listen for it when it's like four o'clock in the morning in your soul and everything inside you says it's time to run? God has abandoned me. Nothing will ever be okay again. Do you know his voice when you're tempted to run to the bottle? Or tempted to run to to you know pornography or or, or whatever to feel better right now? Are you sitting in the shadowiest of shadows with your eyes closed? Or are you following him in the path that he has set for you? The amazing thing about this psalm is, this is our song. The people who have been bought by the blood of Christ. I'm closing prayer and I'll let you go. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are the body of Christ, that we can gather and worship you, that we can be in this place, we can sing praises to you, that we can, we can raise up our voices, that we can fellowship, that we can, we can be family together, Lord God. I thank you that you've anointed us with the, with the blood of your Son, with the oil of your Holy Spirit, with the, the grace and mercy that you offer us through him. And I pray, Lord God, that we would follow you in paths of righteousness, that we would listen for your voice when it seems like the world is broken, when it seems like 
like violence is everywhere, when it seems like evil men are in control, when it seems like everything is as screwed up as it gets, we know that you've got us. We know that when we're corrected, it's for our own good and we're comforted. We know that when we're in danger, your rod and staff protect us and lead us to safety. Help us to be people who find comfort in the knowledge that Christ Christ bought us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good Sunday, folks.